Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to this third episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jessica Young, the TIPQC Maternal Medical Director, Dr. Nikki Zeit, our preceding Maternal Medical Director at TIPQC, and Megan Lacey, the Tennessee State Champion for IPP Lark. We will discuss IPP Lark in Tennessee, the successes of the TIPQC Improvement Project, and what the future holds. Let's get to it. This is Jessica Young, and I'm here with Nikki Zai and Megan Lacey. Thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to be talking about LARC, so long-acting reversible contraceptives, and the ability to offer those methods of contraception as inpatients in the hospital after delivery. And we call that IPP LARC. So if you hear that thrown around, that, that's what that refers to. But I'd like to start out talking about just a general overview. Uh, Nikki, what contraceptive options are available to women postpartum? So really, I mean, all of the contraceptive options that we have available for women can be translated into the immediate postpartum period with some slight like nuances or variability. Because of the high estrogen state after delivery, we try to avoid estrogen containing birth control in the three or four weeks immediately after delivery. Some people would even say out to six weeks. Realistically, we recommend not having intercourse during that time, but we know that that doesn't always happen. And we also know that some women's return to fertility can be quick. So um, we do want women to have options and have contraception plans discussed with them during their prenatal period and before they get discharged from the hospital, have a plan. Especially in this time of COVID, a lot of women are not able to come back for postpartum visits. And so knowing what they're going to utilize as their method in that window before they can see their doctor is definitely an advantage. Also, breastfeeding changes some um, utilization. A lot of breastfeeding women won't have regular periods. So that means that natural family planning is very hard to use in that window of time. And then estrogen containing methods can impact the amount and quality of breast milk. So we typically try to avoid those methods um, while women are breastfeeding also. So that makes some of the non-hormonal or hormonal options that don't have estrogen really nice during that postpartum period. Why is it important that women have access to postpartum contraception? So specifically in the window of time that they are in the hospital, it's just very convenient. They are there already. They have access to their healthcare providers. We know they're not pregnant. So where some of our methods, we like to start or initiate them knowing they're not pregnant immediately after birth is a really uh, clear 
sign that they are no longer pregnant. But then also, again, it's that we don't know when they'll be able to come back for an appointment. It's already uh, challenging to get into a doctor's office when you have a newborn, but you add COVID, you add um, other health issues, and they just might not be prioritizing themselves. And so they'll prioritize their baby and go to baby appointments instead. And we know that um, something called short interval births or birth spacing that is less than um, two years from birth to birth um, present some high risks for mom and baby. And we'd like to try and avoid those short interval births if we can. So getting the contraception started during the time of delivery really helps to do that. Traditionally, long acting methods like IUDs and implants haven't been offered in the inpatient setting. And we're really only available at that six week traditional postpartum visit or after that, if the clinician doesn't provide it all at one time, what's changed? What's different? Yeah, so that's interesting. So some of that um, is likely because a lot of times research isn't done on those women for various reasons, um, sometimes because of breastfeeding, sometimes for other reasons. And so that population of women weren't included in a lot of the initial long-acting reversible contraceptive studies. And so that means that the FDA didn't approve them for those indications, which can tie into providers' comfort level. We have plenty of um, clinical evidence that it is safe in that window of time, but very few of the companies have gone through the process of getting the FDA label changed. So we still, um, if we do these methods in the immediate postpartum period, are using it what's called off-label. Uh, and sometimes, again, that impacts provider comfort, but that also can impact reimbursement. Um, and these long-acting reversible contraceptive methods are very expensive in the short term. So the initial costs, when you look at them, if they are utilized long term, they end up being very cost effective. But the devices themselves can cost somewhere between $500 and $1,000, depending on the device you're looking at. So that one-time cost is quite a bit. And because of the way billing is done for a delivery admission, hospitals often would not get paid for that additional $500 to $1,000. And physicians or providers would not get paid for the insertion. So there wasn't a lot of incentive by these groups to make sure they were offering this option for their patients. Are there educational barriers that clinicians have to? or kind of biases that, that clinicians have to offering uh, immediate postpartum LARC? I do think there are. I think some of it is, again, because of those FDA labels. Sometimes providers um, don't educate themselves on the actual evidence as opposed to just what the FDA says. And then there are always going to be some concerns about the breastfeeding issue, even though um, there's good evidence that show these methods don't interfere with lactation, initiation, or continuation. Um, and then there's the concern when you put an intrauterine device in a uterus that just had a pregnancy, you can see why some providers would be concerned that that would put a woman at increased risk of infection or possibly something called expulsion when the device is um, pushed out of the uterus without the patient knowing. We do have good evidence that the risk of expulsion is increased 
after delivery. Um, you can imagine a big uterus just had a baby is kind of trying to shrink back down and get back to its normal size. And in the process of shrinking, it might push out an IUD. But even with the evidence that shows expulsion is higher, we know that overall it is still safe. The infection rate is not increased. And when we look at all women over a six month to one year window of time, women who had it placed at the time of delivery versus women who were scheduled to come back and have it placed later, the numbers really do even out because so many women have that barrier I mentioned before about not being able to get back to their appointment or not being able to get the device once they do come back because of other insurance or financial reasons. So even though um, in some studies, up to 25% may expel an IUD placed at the time of delivery. You still end up seeing just as many still utilizing it at six months when you factor in those other barriers. And then the implant that goes in the arm would not have a lot of those uh, risk factors or concerns. So that's a really good option if a patient does have a bleeding problem after delivery or an infection of the womb after delivery and can't get an IUD. From a patient perspective, can you tell us what a patient would experience if she's, she chose immediate postpartum IUD versus an immediate postpartum Nexplanon? What does that look like? Um, so... I haven't been in that situation myself, but I try to uh, put myself in that uh, situation when we're counseling patients. Um, and the IUD is placed in the actual delivery room typically, usually shortly after the placenta has delivered both in a vaginal delivery or in a cesarean. If a patient has regional anesthesia, an epidural or a spinal, then they're really not going to feel the insertion and they're not going to know anything different than the delivery process. If they don't have regional anesthesia at the time of a vaginal delivery, they may have a little bit more discomfort during the placement than if they didn't have um, a IUD inserted, but it wouldn't be, we, would, we wouldn't expect it to be that different than if they had it inserted at a six week visit or later. And some women you know, experience a significant amount of discomfort at that time. That's a different experience for everyone. I know as a provider, you've seen the same thing where you're telling someone, okay, now you're gonna have some cramping and you finish placing the IUD and they didn't even know you did it. And some women who you know, scream and basically kick you the entire time. So it's a very different experience for everybody. And I think we just have to counsel women on expectations and make sure that they are on board every step of the way and aware of what we are doing. Um, the uh, arm implant or the um, next one on at our institution is actually placed on the postpartum floor. So that can be done anytime during that delivery admission, not necessarily right after the baby comes out while they're still trying to you know, cuddle with the baby during that first golden hour um, while they're first trying to learn how to breastfeed, but just sometime before they get discharged. Um, and the actual insertion is exactly the same, whether it's done in the hospital or whether it's done at any time unrelated to delivery. There's an injection of numbing medicine placed, and then the device is inserted. Um, the process probably takes less than five minutes in total, um, and is not really that different than having an IV started, which all pregnant women or most pregnant women have already had that experience during their delivery admission. You talked a little bit already about the financial piece 
to these devices and how that was a barrier to getting IUDs and implants available for for women after delivery in the hospital. How did this become accessible for women or for many women in Tennessee? Right. So it really involved getting that um, global fee of pregnancy and unbundling that contraceptive service during the delivery admission so that providers and the hospital could get reimbursed. And that was a combined effort of um, 10 Care, the Department of Health, the Tennessee Hospital Association, TIPQC, um, all of the managed care organizations that facilitate the 10 care plans um, all got in a room and realized that this really did make sense to offer for the women of Tennessee. And in November of 2017, the policy changed so that hospitals could bill separately for the devices and providers could bill separately for the insertion fee. And this really led to the opportunity to move forward with um, having this available on many labor and delivery suites or postpartum floors across the state of Tennessee. Unfortunately, um, private insurers have not all jumped on board with that. So we have a system right now in Tennessee where we know that we can offer this for women that um, have 10 care during their pregnancy, which is about a 50% of the deliveries that occur across the state. But that still means that a lot of women don't have this option. Do you see that changing in the future? I certainly hope so. And we certainly have been um, continuing to try and work on that. Um, we readdress it with our hospital um, contracting folks when those kind of things come up. We um, have patients that are interested. We ask them to call their insurance carriers and ask for it. And we've had some um, patients come in saying that they've talked to their insurance carrier and that their insurance carrier does cover it. And so we've moved forward with allowing them to have the devices inserted. And then we work um, at an institutional level kind of following the money um, to see if we actually get reimbursed for that device and that insertion. And there are several that we're still following and we're still hopeful that um, some of these insurance companies will um, pick up and start covering this more routinely. Megan, I want to switch focus and talk about implementation. So how hospitals got IPP LARC to be covered, the processes that they used to make sure this was accessible to women. Can you talk about that? How was this actually implemented? Yeah, so probably the first place for um, institutions to start was identifying where they were going to keep these devices and how they were going to access them when patients came in and maybe delivered quickly and would like an IUD. Um, as we know, the devices are quite expensive, so um, some institutions decided their pharmacy would keep them and they would have the device come up as the patient requested, and then other institutions kept the devices on their floors uh, to in a locked medicine cabinet to make sure that they were secure. Um, with that, we at our institution had our devices in the locked medicine cabinet, and um, we quickly realized that sometimes nurses were doing a little bit of a workaround and pulling the device out without tying it to the patient. So that was something that helped us train other institutions to look out for um, because that would maybe remove the opportunity to bill for that device and took a little investigating on my part to figure out who actually should be charged for the device. 
So besides the physical uh, location of the devices, we also recommended that institutions start with health literate, uh, comprehensive, patient-centered education to make sure that, yes, the program was focused on um, providing immediate postpartum LARC to patients, but we also wanted to focus on increasing contraception, uh, comprehensive contraceptive education during prenatal care. Um, we actually did an analysis with one of our former residents, uh, Dr. Alexandra Monaco, and we found that when women come in with a plan, if they had that reported conversation with their provider during prenatal care, they were significantly more likely to obtain their device or their method that they chose. And sometimes that was no method and that was fine. Um, but as long as they had that conversation and reported it and knew what they wanted, that was mostly our focus. We also partnered with an organization called Sister Reach, which is a reproductive justice organization out of Memphis to help ensure that we didn't venture into any course of tracks or um, use inappropriate language in any of our education to both patients and providers. And we really learned a lot from Cherise Scott, who was the founder and CEO of that organization, or is the founder and CEO of that organization. And it really helped us tailor the education that we gave to patients and providers in our local region. I know when I would go out to provide education to smaller institutions in East Tennessee, I would remind providers that if we don't know where patients can get these devices removed for free, we should be assessing, uh, reassessing our desires to implement an IPP LARC program because LARC does require patients to depend on the healthcare system to be able to have that device removed. Um, we wanted to be sure that providers kept that in the back of their mind as um, something that they should be educating their patients on. And on the institutional level uh, to implement this program, um, we highly recommend becoming best friends with your billers and coders. Um, they know me maybe a little bit too well at our institution, but we have become uh, quite close. We still continue to monitor the number of devices placed each quarter and follow the trail to make sure that we're getting reimbursed. Specifically at our institution, because of that global fee of pregnancy that Dr. Zeit mentioned, our program, our billing programs were kicking out the J code that is required to bill for these devices. And so our billers are now manually having to put the J code in and they keep the bill for that device on top of the patient's big stack of bills that gets submitted so that the insurance companies can't miss it. And then our coding manager um, has been phenomenal. Uh, through this project, we learned that our institution actually contracts with coders across the nation, and not all of them may be privy to the nuances of IPP LARC in Tennessee. So we continue to monitor on that end as well to ensure that there aren't opportunities for education there and teaching them how our providers at our institution were going to be documenting that this patient did in fact get the device. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> big question. Yeah. Um, TIPQC, and for those of you not familiar out there, that's our state perinatal quality care organization, had a statewide quality improvement project, still has, is in sustainment now, that focused on uh, inpatient postpartum LARC. Uh, Megan, can you talk to us a little bit about that project and how was that important in 
uh, rolling out IPP LARC access throughout the state. Yeah, uh, so TIPQC gave us the platform to communicate with other institutions and really streamline the information that was being distributed about IPP LARC in the state. So making sure that all institutions involved were doing that patient-centered, comprehensive uh, contraceptive education, and also training providers on recognizing coercive language. For example, no one needs a LARC, which may be a gut instinct for some providers who maybe see a patient who is struggling financially or with their health. Um, the gut instinct should not be, oh, she needs a LARC. It should be, she needs education. And TIPQC allowed us the platform to streamline that kind of messaging um, that really came from Sister Reach and their background. It also gave us the platform to uh, constantly do those checks on billing and coding um, with the institution. And uh, we would kind of do the deep dive for institutions and then bring them the takeaways on what they should do at their institution. Nikki, do you want to add anything as the former medical maternal medical director of TIPQC? <laughs> yeah, I think there were a lot of um, benefits to doing this as a statewide quality project. Megan um, hit on most of them, but it also um, just kind of centralized the troubleshooting. Uh, we got emails quite often that were sent to Brenda in the TIPQC office, and she knew to forward it on to us. We made our connections with all the wonderful people that were helping and motivated to do this at TenCare. Um, so if an institution was having billing issues, they made us aware immediately. There were situations where hospitals thought they were getting paid, and Dr. Abrahouse at TenCare was able to confirm that they actually were not getting paid. Um, so we were able to fix that issue before they got too far in the hole, and a program could have potentially been shut down because a hospital lost too much money. Uh, so there were definitely advantages to making this um, a, a series of PDS day cycles and working through the process at a quality level. What are the biggest challenges that teams, institutions, hospitals face when trying to implement a IPP LARC program? Yeah, so it was really interesting. We found that across the institutions that were trying to implement this, that it was different at several of the institutions. Megan already mentioned the issue with space. And although the devices themselves are really small, the boxes that the devices come in are quite large. And so figuring out where in the pharmacy or the locked medicine cabinets these devices actually fit was a struggle for some centers. Then working with the pharmacy to pick which devices they were gonna order. There's more than one option for hormonal IUD. And then how many they were gonna order. Again, these devices are expensive and they didn't want to get into a situation where they had them sitting on the shelves for a long time if they weren't going to be using them. Then there was the issue of creating an electronic medical record system that ordered the devices, that documented the devices, that created a consent form. Some institutions had issues with a written procedure needed to be created and go through several committees. The order set had to go through committees. 
and then um, the actual putting together of the equipment needed for the insertions. So we just had to follow a really detailed implementation strategy and help each institution with where they got stuck along that implementation strategy. And thankfully, with so many different institutions working on it, when we got together as a group, somebody could troubleshoot for somebody else. It wasn't even always our institution that had the answers. We found answers across the board with creative ways that people dealt with the different situations that came up. So it was really great to do it as a quality improvement project. So I think we would be remiss to not talk about COVID and the pandemic. Has that affected options for either immediate postpartum LARC in the hospital or any other contraceptive options inpatient or outpatient? So I think we um, saw that immediate postpartum long-acting reversible contraception wasn't really negatively impacted um, because it doesn't require any additional staffing or um, personal protective equipment. Um, We may have seen a little bit of a challenge for um, postpartum sterilization um, because that does require more staffing, operating rooms, and potentially PPE. Um, So that actually made um, immediate postpartum long-acting contraception more desirable for some patients or some women chose to use that as a bridge possibly until they could get their sterilization, especially because during part of the pandemic, Um, we weren't doing interval sterilization. So we couldn't tell a woman that didn't get it at the time of delivery that she reliably could get it at six or eight weeks postpartum. Um, And also postpartum appointments were being done virtually and we haven't figured out how to put in a uh, long acting reversible contraceptive virtually. So that wasn't happening for a short while also. Megan, did you also see some other changes? Yeah, I believe just looking at the data overall, I have seen a few more LARC devices placed over this time, but we are actually doing a study to do a deep dive to see if COVID actually had an impact on contraceptive access and access to sterilization. So Megan, can you talk a little bit more about pitfalls to promoting LARC and how do we keep from falling into that that chasm? Yeah, so... Though my title was the Tennessee State Lark Champion, um, I jokingly, not jokingly, always told people, I may be the Lark Champion, but Larks aren't right for everybody. And it really did go back to ensuring that we were doing comprehensive uh, patient education, comprehensive contraceptive patient education. Um, And I think a major pitfall for any organization that wants to implement IPP LARC could be focusing on trying to increase the number of LARCs placed instead of focusing on the number of women who want LARCs being able to obtain LARCs. And so I think that's a very key difference is trying to measure women's desire in addition to their ability to obtain LARC. Um, It can be tricky to measure that. We were able to at our institution, um, but I think yeah, focusing on the number purely alone is a, a, could be a big pitfall. Are there ways to make contraceptive education non-coercive in patient-centered? Yeah, so um, asking a patient what is important to them in their contraception method, um, what are their intentions with future pregnancies, 
what benefits do they want outside of contraception from their contraception are all important questions to ask to make sure that patients are getting a device or a method that they feel is best for them. And then when a patient decides that maybe they don't want a method or they may want a method that isn't as effective um, as others, it, that needs to be okay with the person doing the counseling. Nikki, as a OB physician, how do you approach that counseling around contraception, contraceptive options? Yeah, I think very much as um, Megan just mentioned, it definitely has been a learning curve. I think that most physicians really want to focus on efficacy um, and effectiveness. And again, that's not always going to be the patient's priority. Or what we've learned is that the most effective method for a given woman is going to be the method that she chooses. Um, because if she gets an IUD and didn't really want it and loses her uh, confidence or comfort with the medical community and has it removed and then doesn't get another method at all um, because she doesn't have that trust that she will be um, respected, then you lose all. So it is about accepting her decision. Whether it is a decision that you would make or you agree with doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we mentioned it earlier, but really making sure that women know that if they return to have a device removed, they will have it removed. And if they can't come to your institution any longer because of a change in their insurance coverage, they need to know where they can go for free or low cost removals, where again, it will be removed if they desire it to be removed. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that's come up over and over again with LARC, that a key to its to its benefit, and one of the things we feel is very appealing, is that it is reversible. But that has to be true and not only in theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think another thing for providers to remember is that there is a longstanding history of reproductive coercion in this country, and some women are going to come in and automatically not trust their provider because of that or because of the power dynamics of being a patient versus a provider. And so coming into that arena, knowing that if you're a provider, you may have the power in the room, according to the patient, it's good to be able to release that and give the patient the power in deciding that. What if a patient says, what's the method you would use? If you were me, what, what should I do? <laughs> what do you do when that happens? I mean, my typical response is, is something along the lines of, you know, it, it doesn't matter because I'm, you know, totally different. And I wouldn't tell you about all these options if I didn't think they were reasonable options. Mm -hmm. And I have to factor in your health conditions. Maybe you have migraines or you have high blood pressure and I don't. So what I would use isn't even an option for you. But I do actually think that self-disclosure can be okay. And I typically do tell women that I love my hormonal IUD and will go to the grave with a hormonal IUD. Um, but again, that doesn't mean it's the right option for them. Um, it just means that for me, it has worked amazingly well. Um, and in my crazy lifestyle, I'm not going to remember something every day um, or every week or every month. So the set it and forget it option works for me. And I've been lucky enough to have a great bleeding profile with it. Um, but that's not going to be the case for everybody. 
Um, some women have uteruses that don't allow that to even be considered as an option. So um, there, it's just not one size fits all and you can't expect someone in very different walks of life to necessarily have the same experience with contraception. What's the future of postpartum contraception? What are the next steps? Hopefully um, more availability. Um, ideally, options that um, scientifically decrease some of the risks that we worry about that make people hesitant to use them. Um, if there was a intrauterine option that did not have the risk of expulsion or malposition when placed at the time of a vaginal delivery or a C-section, I think that we'd have more widespread use. I think that if there was a device that more reliably a woman could remove herself, that would help with some of the trust issues. Um, they're looking at a implant for the arm that maybe dissolves over time um, and is more um, reliable in the amount of time that it is effective. Maybe that would be something that more women would want to utilize as opposed to one that needs to be removed. So I think there's a lot of uh, potential in the future. And it's going to be about everyone staying up to date with the science and with the work in the area of reproductive justice and coercion and equity. I mean, it's a little ironic that in our state, we currently have a system where 10 care patients have access, but patients with private insurance don't. Uh, it's not a typical equity situation that you see, um, but it is just as disappointing that those women who want the contraceptive option don't have access to it. Megan, any final words from, from you? No, I think, I think Dr. Zeit covered it all. Thank you both so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.